right. Okay. But we can re-talk about what we talked about. Yeah. Hey, everyone, <laughs> hey everyone and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. So today's guest is a vegan cardiologist, Dr. Andrew Freeman, and he's been on the show before. He's a very, very popular guest. Please welcome him back. How have you been? I, I saw you like for about 30 seconds at the Plantrition <laughs> Conference. You were just running in and running out, but you gave a spectacular presentation. Yeah, no, it's it's been great. Thanks again for having me on. It's always nice to catch up and um, this time without a, a planned uh, high pressure content series, uh, which is great. Um, you know, and, and and we were just talking a moment ago, but I think uh, the world of science and, and the plant-based nutrition um, arena is so vast that, you know, this is the time of year where I start to put together all of my talks for next year and to gather all of that data, all the things that have been published really takes a lot of effort. So today I, I'm just here to, to catch up with you and talk about whatever health topics would be useful. And, um, you know, you started a moment ago about high blood pressure and I I want to make sure the audience understands just how big of a problem this is. So roughly 50% of Americans have high blood pressure. So you can look to the left, you can look to the right, and chances are one of those people has high blood pressure. Now you might say, well, great, everyone's got high blood pressure, who cares? But the stats are pretty startling. If you look at the rough statistics, for every 20 points, your blood pressure goes above 120, your risk for dying doubles. So at 140 double, 160 quadruple, 180, you know, eight times, and it gets to an exponential point beyond uh, as you go through all this. It's just, it's crazy to think about. So, so, okay. This is so funny that you mentioned high blood pressure because I'm doing something about that. Um, I'm, I have a project that I can't, can't want to talk about right now, but when I was researching it, it said that uh, there's over a hundred million people just in the United States that have it. Is that true? Something like one out of every three people? One out of every two. That's what I'm saying. 50% of Americans and on average have some form of heart disease, most of which is high blood pressure. So it is an unbelievably uh, undertreated uh, entity. I mean, let me just explain. The other thing is on top of everyone having high blood pressure, most of us doctors and cardiologists are actually relatively terrible at getting it under control quickly. And, um, you know, it sounds like you might be doing some, some work in that space to do it. You know, plant-based living, as you probably know, and of course, combined with exercise are probably some of nature's best ways to control blood pressure. You know, if you go to parts of the world where Western society does not prevail, you know, it's not uncommon to see people walking around with a blood pressure of 90 or 100 on the top number, um, which I think is really amazing. And, you know, if you're 90 or 100 at your doctor's office, everyone will run over and ask if you're feeling okay. Uh, so it's really very interesting. Well, speaking of not, okay, so I was at the doctor for regular appointment and the readout was 86 over 56 and they thought it was great because it's a it's a vegan doctor. But when I posted it on Instagram, I was actually attacked saying, you're hypotensive. You need to get to the emergency room. What do you say about that? Yeah. So the truth is the numbers don't matter. It's really how you're feeling. So remember, if you're relatively thin, you're a relatively small person, your normal blood pressure could be 90 or even 85 on the top number. You know, if you come in and say, I am dreadfully lightheaded, I can't feel, I feel like I can't function, I'm going to pass out, then you're hypotensive. But if you're, the problem is, is if you look at the average American, if you look at the bell curves in Western parts of the world, you know, a blood pressure of 
85 or 90 falls on the very low end of the bell curve, if it's even on the curve at all, uh, even though it's probably normal, interestingly enough. So I guess what I would say is um, it's really all about mentation, right? If somebody is mentating well, their brain is functioning, there's enough pressure. And it's also important to point out that, you know, blood pressure is one of those things that's kind of interesting when you think about it. At the very end of this very long hose that comes off of your heart is your brain. And if you're sitting there getting a high pressure from your heart for, you know, years or decades or whatever, and then we suddenly kind of turn it down and dim it, people feel dim, uh, you know, temporarily until they get used to it again. And so a lot of times when we treat high blood pressure, uh, people feel poorly for a few days until they get used to the newer, lower blood pressure. So that's interesting. So they call it the silent killer. So how do people know they have it if they aren't checking their blood pressure or going to the doctor? Do some of them literally just drop dead? Well, uh, yes, that's possible. You know, what does uncontrolled high blood pressure do? So it does create symptoms at some point. If you get high enough, you can have headaches and blurry vision. Um, you can show up with a stroke or a heart attack. Um, you know, it makes the heart muscle thick. It hurts the kidneys, hurts your eyes and your vision. So it has a lot of different effects throughout the body that are far less than ideal. And it is the silent killer because most people don't know they have it unless they're checking for it. It's one of the interesting things. If you go back into the history of medicine, one of the things that led to the so-called quote unquote checkup was that your blood pressure would get checked, right? Because you wouldn't know you had a problem unless you checked. Um, these days, it's pretty easy to check your blood pressure. And in fact, you know, beyond the blood pressure cuff, which I would argue can be inaccurate at times, uh, there's a number of newer methods that are emerging that use either light or uh, waveform sensors in your blood, uh, like just superficially touching your skin, for instance, uh, that are due to come out in the near future that will make blood pressure measurements a lot easier and readily available. But that said, uh, yes, it is uh, indeed a silent killer. And it's important that people periodically check their blood pressure. You know, these days when you go to the dentist, you can get your blood pressure checked. Most of the time they do that. If you do that, now you could argue there are people who never do that. That's a whole nother issue. Um, <laughs> you can certainly find a, a blood pressure cuff at your local grocery store in the back by the pharmacy. Usually they're not being used, so take advantage. Um, and then of course you can buy a blood pressure cuff. And it's really important that you don't get, you know, the cheap blood pressure cuff made overseas somewhere uh, it's really important you go to a good website like validatebp.org um, and find a blood pressure cuff that's been vetted, if you will, um, because blood pressure cuffs are not all made the same. I'm curious about that because I used to be like 40 years ago, a respiratory therapist. And when we took blood pressure, we had to use this sphy sphy I can never say that, sphygma manometer and a stethoscope. And now I haven't gone anywhere in the last five years where they do that. They, they just put you in the thing or one of them, if they put a little bracelet on you and tell you to go like this, are, are those accurate? You know, the truth is the wrist blood pressure cuffs, I don't know about putting it up against your heart per se, but the wrist blood pressure cuffs are usually, not always, usually less accurate than the arm blood pressure cuffs. But as you may know, the arm blood pressure cuff is, is a little bit of an art. So what most people don't realize is when they're checking their blood pressure, you have to do a couple of things. Like first, you actually have to pee, believe it or not. So if you, if you get your blood pressure checked and your bladder is full, your blood pressure will typically be higher. Um, you have to sit quietly for several minutes uh, with both feet on the floor, no cross legs, et cetera. Your you know, arm should be at heart level. Um, you know, there's, it's a, there's a lot of uh, little nuancey things. And then of course you have to have the right blood pressure cuff because if your blood pressure cuff is too big or too small, it will not measure accurately. 
And so the truth is all of the medical assistants that check you into various doctor's offices and so forth do know how to check blood pressures with a manual blood pressure cuff and a, a stethoscope. That said, you're very right. It's very seldom done. Um, and many times I will do it if somebody requests and I've, that's exactly how we do it. We have those um, blood pressure uh, measuring devices, Fignum and monitors uh, in all of the doctor's offices, uh, all of the rooms that we see patients in. But I would also say uh, that it is not a commonly done thing anymore. And then of course, a lot of it depends on how well you hear. Uh, so if you have a doctor who might be older, who may have, you know, have less good hearing or whatever, Sometimes they may not hear your blood pressure cuff sounds as well, but these days they have all these great electronic stethoscopes that make a lot of difference. But blood pressure cuffs are, are kind of a, a loaded topic because they're so easy to get wrong just as much as they're very helpful at the same time, so. Yeah. So speaking of hypertension, we look high blood pressure because I'm not sure everybody knows what the word hypertension means. What's the cause and what's the cure? Is there a cure? Well, so we call it essential hypertension, right? Um, and hyper just meaning too much and tension being pressure. Uh, and it's funny you, you say that a lot of times when I'm teaching my patients, I say, you know, um, one of the tenets of lifestyle medicine, of course, is stress relief. And we talk a little bit about hypertension, right? Too much stress, even the word disease, dis-ease, lack of ease. Um, and the question is, is how do we restore ease to people and make their blood pressure better? And you've probably heard phrases like, oh, my boss, he turns beet red when he's angry. And, you know, that's his blood pressure going up and flushing his face or her face. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a common thing that we don't always know the, the exact cause. We do know things that mitigate high blood pressure. So we know that when people lose weight, their blood pressure goes down. We know when people exercise, uh, their blood pressure goes down if they exercise regularly. Now, I want the audience to make sure they understand this part. Part. If you go out, let's say you decide to go out for a run or you hit the treadmill in the morning, um, you're going to kind of see your blood pressure go up while you exercise. And then it usually comes down below where you started. And that's really the effect we're after. And then, of course, diet, right? So, you know, if you go back in time, you, many of you have probably heard about the DASH diet, the dietary approaches to stopping hypertension, or even the one before that, the portfolio diet. These were some of the original plant-based plant predominant, not fully plant-based uh, diets that showed significant reductions in blood pressure. And so, you know, the question is, why do we all have high blood pressure? Well, some of it, there are some genetic issues. There are some kidney issues. Um, there are some metabolic and endocrine issues and things like that. But the vast majority of us, we call it essential hypertension. We really don't know the cause, but I suspect the cause is actually lifestyle. We're just not saying that out loud. And I think if we work on our diet and our salt intake on our exercise and, you know, stress relieving and sleeping enough and all these other things, really important. And so I guess I would point out that sleep apnea, uh, which is also super common in the United States and Western world countries, is a major uh, contributor to high blood pressure. And most people don't realize that they actually have problems. Sleep apnea for the audience is when you stop breathing while you're asleep. And part of it has to do with your sort of facial structure. And part of it has to do with your weight and your neck size and that kind of thing. So bottom line, it's very interesting stuff. And so the more we learn about all these different lifestyle facets, the more that I'm convinced that what we're calling essential hypertension is really lifestyle mediated hypertension. Okay. That was a mouthful. So yes. um, do you believe that it can be cured? And a lot, is there a genetic component yeah. So I think it definitely can be cured. I've seen people cure it. Um, and the way they typically cure it is by changing their lifestyle. Most people um, can also get their blood pressure under good control with medications. The way I like to do it when I see somebody is I 
tell them that I want to put the fire out before I plant flowers at their house. That means I'll hit them with medications up front with a goal of getting them off within a few months or sooner if it's possible. Um, and the reason is you just don't want to let people live at super high blood pressures while they're implementing lifestyle changes because they could get hurt in the process. Um, and then I think, um, you know, weight loss, treating sleep apnea sometimes cures high blood pressure literally overnight. It's pretty amazing. Um, I've seen people work on stress relieving techniques. Um, exercise is a major, I mean, I've certainly had my favorite day, um, Chef AJ, is when people come in my clinic. Uh, and then they have high blood pressure. I put them on a medication. Their blood pressure gets better. They change their lifestyle. And then they call me up a couple of weeks later and say, doc, I am feeling so lightheaded. My blood pressure is 80 over 50. Can I please get off of this medication? And of course my answer is yes, right now, stop taking it. Um, so yes, it is curable, not always. And so again, you, there are some genetic things that can cause people to have their blood pressure be high. And then of course there are a number of other, um, you know, environmental and physical variables like kidney disease uh, and other things that can make people's blood pressure go up. So. Nice. So the medication though, does it really cure it or does it just alleviate symptoms? And what are the side effects for many people? It doesn't even alleviate symptoms most of the time. It just controls the blood pressure. Um, you know, I would say, I would tell you this, as you probably know, every medicine that you take is potentially a poison with a beneficial side effect. And the goal is that the beneficial side effect is much bigger than the poison effect. Um, but sometimes people have issues with medications and that happens lots. Um, but I would say that lots and lots of medications are very well tolerated. Um, and so, you know, the question is, um, does the medication cure the disease in this case? No, it controls the disease, which is why people are on blood pressure pills typically for life, unless they make these lifestyle changes. Right. So what I was going to say is, are they still at risk for having a cardiovascular event if they're on the medication, but still doing what caused the disease in the first place or contributed? Yeah. It turns out if we get people's blood pressure under control by whatever means that their risk goes down, it doesn't go to zero. And if you said to me, if someone has controlled high blood pressure, is their risk higher than somebody who has normal blood pressure without medications? I'm going to guess the answer is yes, but I'm not sure there's a clear study that would say that per se. Yeah. So what does uncontrolled high blood pressure lead to and how quickly does it lead to it? So uncontrolled high blood pressure can lead to, like I said, a whole variety of things, strokes, heart attacks, uh, the heart muscle can get thick. Uh, it can lead to left atrial enlargement, which predisposes to atrial fibrillation. Um, you know, it can lead to uh, kidney disease, dialysis, uh, can lead to liver and uh, GI tract disease. It can lead to eye and vision loss. Um, I mean, you name it, there's really no organ that's protected. I mean, our body was designed to have obviously fluctuations in blood pressure, but when we, when we have fluctuation, when we have high blood pressure consistently, that's when we have a real problem. Nice. Nice. Would you say the majority of the patients you see have it? Is that the number one thing that you, you treat or deal oh, with? Oh, no. Well, gosh, I mean, here's the, here's the thing, right? So I always joke about this, but like I always say to my colleagues, when was the last time you took care of one a disease in a person. When was the last time you took care of a person who had just high blood pressure? They don't, right? Everybody has high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, um, you know, peripheral neuropathy, sleep apnea, atrial fibrillation. You know, it's like one, you know, these days you don't get very rarely do you get the one disease individual every <laughs> so often, but it's pretty uncommon. Wow. That's what they call comorbidities, right? Yeah, they're the multi-morbid patient, which is the standard patient we all see these days. And many times you don't know 
that they have some of these issues until you start looking, right? So somebody comes in with high blood pressure and I'll get an echo to look at their heart muscle and see how it's working. And then I'll run some blood work on them. And it turns out that they actually all have cardiometabolic disease for the most part, which means some of them have chronic kidney disease. Some of them have high cholesterol. Some of them have diabetes or prediabetes. Um, some of them have thyroid disease. Some of them have atrial fibrillation that they come in for high blood pressure. And it turns out when you listen to their heart, it's irregular. And then you get an EKG and they have atrial fibrillation, which as you probably know, pre predisposes to stroke. So all these different things are kind of interconnected. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, but all these people have this sort of cascades of illness. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've heard that even young children now are being put on statins. Are young children being put on high blood pressure medication as well? If their blood pressure is severe enough, that does happen. Um, you know, and the statins uh, in children is, is a controversial topic, as you can probably imagine. Um, but there are some people who have like familial hypercholesterolemia, a genetic problem that sometimes requires earlier therapy because they're at very high risk for early heart attacks. You know, some of these people are at such high risk if they have something called homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, where their cholesterol levels are super duper high from birth, that some of these people can have heart attacks when they're teenagers or in their 20s. It's pretty scary stuff. But for the all comers, you know, if you're living on mac and cheese and, you know, bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwiches and whatever, you know, and you're significantly overweight and you're not exercising and you're sedentary and playing video games, you know, kids get blood pressure problems. They get high cholesterol. Uh, it's, it's sad, unfortunately. Yeah. And they're even doing gastric bypass on teenagers now, you know? Yeah. I mean, you always hear, I mean, you, you might hear more than I do in California, but uh, yes, there are all sorts of very intensive things. You know, and a lot of people think that gastric bypass is the cure. And I guess what I would tell you is it's often trading one set of problems for another. You know, one of the things I always say to my patients is before you consider gastric bypass, realize that I've taken care of hundreds of people who have defeated whatever their bypass mechanism is, and then they gain weight again. So which is truly more extreme, rearranging your internal organs or eating peas and carrots? For some people, it's the peas and carrots, uh, but for the vast majority of people, rearranging their organs should be a last ditch effort. And unfortunately, I see a lot of people wanting to go on, you know, some of these newer drugs like Wegovy and others um, without making any real efforts in lifestyle modification. It's very frustrating. Absolutely. Here's a question from a live viewer named Susanna. Should a person with elevated blood pressure who is on medication have a test for sleep apnea if they don't know the cause of their high blood pressure and are eating a, a plant-based low salt diet? The doctor is puzzled. Um, it certainly wouldn't be a bad idea. And then I would also suggest that if there's any sort of weight issue, weight loss, uh, these days, many of the sleep studies are typically done um, at home now. Uh, like in our institution, we have a special kind of watch that somebody slaps on. It's a medical grade watch um, that uh, measures for sleep apnea as an initial screen. It's really effective and very easy compared to what we used to do. Um, so I would say that's not a bad idea to consider. Nice. If you guys have any questions, put them in the chat with four question marks. And there have been some that have been sent in in advance. So the first one is from Nancy. And she says, I've done very well with my plant-based SOS-free diet, and I'm now within two pounds of my ideal weight of 125 pounds. Since I've lost weight, however, I've developed a number of spider veins, or maybe they just weren't obvious when I weighed more. My dermatologist said she can inject these with a substance that will make them disappear. My question is, is this procedure safe for my cardiovascular system? Do I need these veins? 
well, so first, I'm not a dermatologist, so I'm not sure what they're planning on injecting you with, but typically they do things called uh, venous sclerotherapy or even with lasers. The truth is most of the superficial veins that you have, you don't need. Um, they're nice to have because they help to return blood back to the circulation. And of course, if you destroy a lot of the uh, peripheral vasculature in the venous system, uh, this can create problems down the road. But I think if you're hitting a few isolated spider veins, it probably shouldn't be an issue. But again, I would talk with a either uh, the dermatologist in greater detail, or even if you're interested, you could probably talk to a vein specialist and see what they have to say. Interesting. Thank you. We have a dermatologist that comes on once a month, Dr. Jessica Krant from Manhattan. And I can save this question and ask her again. If yeah if Nancy would like. Esther says, can you please ask Dr. Freeman, if you're whole food plant-based and 60 years old and 50 pounds overweight with a total cholesterol of 265, APOB 146, LPA 221, just started Repatha, what can I do to lower my genetic risk besides statins? I would prefer something not pharmaceutical. All right. Well, this one is a loaded topic. So first, getting thinner and fitter is always a plus. Second, lipoprotein A is the one that is genetic. So let me just give a quick primer to the audience. So one in five people worldwide has an elevated lipoprotein A. Typically, and I'm going to guess the assay you use is the modern one that we use is anything over 75 is, is typically considered high. And it's a sort of, you know, as the LP little a goes up, your risk goes up. And to give everyone a story that they might relate to, you might remember that show on TV from some years ago, The Biggest Loser. There was this guy, Bob, the trainer in his 40s, had a big heart attack, almost died. He had very high lipoprotein A. And it's an independent risk factor, independent of all other risk factors. So then the question is, okay, well, great. I have this genetic problem. What do I do about it? Well, there is no specific or guideline directed therapy for this. At the end of 24, beginning of 25, for the first time in history, there will be a drug that targets lipoprotein A by itself. Uh, and as you may know, lipoprotein A really does confer earlier heart disease risk and also valvular heart disease risk. Now, ApoB is a better way, if you will, of measuring LDL. Your ApoB is high and your LDL is high. And some of that also could be genetic. Although if you are truly low fat, whole food, plant-based and you're exercising, that should eventually come down. But if it doesn't, you may be one of those people who has other genetic predispositions. Now, if you said to me, well, what do I do with my plant-based whole food, low fat people who have high lipoprotein A? Well, what all the experts are recommending um, based on this is drug therapy, because we can't figure out a way to modify the genes. Now, if you said to me, has there ever been a study where we took people with high lipoprotein A and we put them on a low fat, whole food, plant-based diet, we had them exercise, attain their ideal body weight. Do they have lower risk than the people who don't do that and have high lipoprotein A? I actually don't know the answer to that. So what I have is the best available evidence to date, which suggests that many of these people benefit from a couple of things. So one, many people use a statin to lower risk. Now you'll be surprised to learn that when you put somebody on a statin, their lipoprotein A actually goes up. It doesn't go up by a lot, but it goes up a little bit, but the risk overall goes down. And we're using statins, not so much to lower cholesterol per se, although that does happen, we're using it to lower risk. And then the other thing that you can do is you can go on a PCSK9 inhibitor like Repatha or Preluent or one of the newer ones like Lecvio. And that does actually lower lipoprotein A, but we don't have a lot of outcomes about whether that lowering of lipoprotein A with a pharmacologic approach like I just described actually improves how you do. And then the other thing that we typically recommend is a baby aspirin. 
And you might be asking why that is. Well, it turns out, you know, in the last several years, many of us are getting rid of aspirin in many of our patients. So for clarity, aspirin does lower the risk of heart attack and stroke, uh, but it also raises the risk of bleeding. And it turns out for most people, the benefit of that aspirin doesn't happen until you've had a heart attack or a stroke with some exceptions. So some people with family histories of colon cancer and aspirin is actually somewhat beneficial and protects them. And then other people who have high lipoprotein A, one of the domains, one of the protein domains of lipoprotein A, something called a Kringle, uh, looks a little bit like, and that's not Pringle, but Kringle, uh, looks a little bit like um, a blood clotting factor. And so some people think that that is the mechanism behind some of the increased cardiovascular risk. And so the thought is that an aspirin would help to counter that. So best available evidence to date would say nobody has a clear answer as to what to do about this. Uh, most of us are using uh, higher intensity statins and a baby aspirin. Some people are using PCSK9 inhibitors like Repatha. And then there's some very drastic stuff. If your lipoprotein A is super duper high, some people are doing a very fancy type of dialysis, believe it or not, to filter it out of their blood. It's something called lipid apheresis. Um, but again, you wanna go somewhere that knows what they're doing when you're talking about this because um, you know, you could end up getting some advice that may not help you. And even with that very fancy dialysis, many of us don't know what the results will be when that's lowered because it's not low all the time. Your body just keeps making it. So anyway, so some great questions and clearly some very savvy listeners, uh, Chef AJ. So good thing that there are some well, smart people. Thank you. Uh, would you expect any less? Thank no, you. Ne never. <laughs> and there, I don't understand your question. Uh, live, laugh, love. You said, what is your suggestion, Dr. Freeman? But you got to be more specific suggestion for what? And well, just a, just a quick comment, just so everyone knows. So, you know, we always talk about the hard endpoints, right? Heart attack and stroke and certain cholesterol numbers and whatever. But remember that humans are squishy right? So hard endpoints and squishy things don't always go together. But the five things that I recommend to all of my patients, and we can call it a sixth bonus one, which is not to smoke or use substances. Um, the first is regular exercise. The second is eating a mostly plant-based diet. The third is focusing on stress relief. The fourth is sleeping enough with good quality sleep. And the fifth is connecting or loving uh, others. And it turns out that if you can get all of those domains under good control, and of course not use those substances as the sixth domain, you're doing everything you can to reduce risk. And I'm sure Chef AJ, you've probably spoken with Kim Williams over the years. Um, so Kim, one of my good mentors, has a very clever way of saying things to patients. He says, look, we're all getting older. And as we get older, we're more likely to die. Well, everyone takes that as a given. And we're all more likely to die from heart disease. He just doesn't want it to be anyone's fault. And the best way to make it not your fault is to live an amazing lifestyle. And then when appropriate, uh, pharmacologic therapy makes sense. Thank you. This is from Melissa. We kind of talked about this a little bit in the beginning. Um, I and didn't see the question because I had mentioned my low blood pressure, which isn't low apparently to you, but she said, my blood pressure was low, 90 over 60. My doctor said, use more salt. Now it's 124 over 70. Is a low blood pressure of 90 over 60 dangerous? If so, why? And should I continue to use salt? Yeah, talk a little bit, answer her question, but also talk a little bit just about salt and yeah. high blood pressure in general. So again, a controversial topic. So what I would say is first, if you are 90 over 60 and feeling just fine and doing well, no big deal. The issue becomes, you know, at some point, blood pressure becomes low enough that you have what's called tissue malperfusion, right? So when someone is dying, they're in shock, blood pressure goes down and then they die. And if they go down low enough, right, the brain doesn't get enough nutrients and oxygen and the tissues and the heart and the muscles and everything doesn't get what it needs and you die. Uh, 
So, you know, the question is, if you're 90 over 60, are you dying? I mean, I guess you could be, but probably not. You know, if you were to have a massive hemorrhage, your blood pressure could be low and you would die that way. Um, but that said, you know, being liberal with your salt would only make sense if you're feeling the effects of having lower blood pressure in a negative way. Um, other than that, I'd recommend not adding salt. Most Americans get far too much salt as it is. Um, most of the recommendations are in the range of 1500 to 2000 or 2200 milligrams per day. It's like a teaspoon. It's a super small amount. Um, and it turns out that when salt was not in the diet, we were very avid for salt. And this is why when we do eat salt, our, you know, fingers swell and our rings won't come off and our socks get tight and our, you know, whatever, because we are not accustomed as human beings to do that until you consume large quantities of salt every day. And then you start to get used to it most of the time, unless you have chronic kidney disease or other things like that. So my strong suggestion to you is to turn your salt thermostat down which takes a couple of weeks to do. Um, you know, we all know people, you probably have people over your Thanksgiving holidays that came over and salted all the food before they even tasted it. These people need to be educated about why that might be dangerous. Um, and it turns out that too much salt seems to raise blood pressure. Now, there are certainly people on the other side of the fence that would say, well, if you have normal kidneys, you can have all the salt you want, your body does a really good job at regulating it. And usually it does, but not always. Um, so basically a very loaded topic there. Now, People say, but well, what if I switch to potassium chloride instead of sodium chloride or some of these salt substitutes? So the best salt substitute is a non-salt altogether, like a curry or a cayenne or whatever your favorite spice might be. Um, remember that potassium chloride is still a salt. It's road salt, right? People use that when it snows. And I know it doesn't snow in your neck of the woods per se, uh, very much uh, Chef AJ, but it's road salt and magnesium chloride and all these other things. They're all salts and salts can raise blood pressure, period. Um, so if you can find a non-salt salt, that's great, but most of it's not really salt at all. Um, and so then the question is, how do you season your food so they taste good? And I'm sure Chef AJ could probably give you a much better answer than I could, but lots and lots of curries and things. Well, the thing is, is it's not hard to do it. What's hard is for the people to experience the taste neuroadaptation that has to occur. I can right. make the most delicious food without, I haven't used salt. And I mean, it's not, okay, first of all, I do eat some salt in condiments. I try so hard not to do it, but I'm too lazy sometimes to make my own mustard and ketchup and, um, you know, salsa, but I haven't added any salt to my food since like August, 2008. But the thing is, is people have to go through that little process of discomfort, you know, cause it takes about 30 days to go from a high salt diet or a higher salt dial to a lower or no salt diet. And there's so many wonder, I don't know if you've ever tried salacious, but we work with local spicery a local company that makes non-irritated small batch and glass jars salt substitute not salt substitutes because they're not salt substitutes but they are so amazing because he uses things like sumac he has a barbecue spice a bacon spice a pepperoni spice i mean th these are like delicious like like chefs love them whether you use salt or not and of course there's you know benson's table tasty so these spices exist but until people you know go through that 30 days or whatever it takes they're not going to enjoy it anyway well right and i i know personally speaking i could even easily remember like after i made some of these transitions myself more than a decade ago anytime i would go out anywhere it would just feel like everything would be so salty almost uncomfortably so um, and then the other thing that most people don't realize is the salt that most people get in their diet doesn't actually come from the shaker, right? It comes from the food that they buy that's typically processed. Um, so any boxed food is typically salted. And then for those 
of your audience that are still making transitions, poultry, believe it or not, is one of the number one sources of salt in the American diet. And that's because that bird has been brined or injected or whatever um, with huge quantities. And then, you know, for those of you that are big into pickles and all these other things, you know, those are great, but realize that a single pickle could have a full day's worth of salt in just one pickle. Did you uh, hear that, Charles? The cardiologist said a single pickle has a full day's worth of salt. He loves pickles. He just like eats yeah, pickles. Well, like I, I would say that pickles are great. Kimchi, all these great that you can do all these, just don't do it all the time. So if you're one of those people, you know, look, I'm from New York, right? A New York pickle is amazing, right? Um, but if you're eating them every day, uh, you know, you could end up with a lot of salt excess. And most people know when they eat too much salt. I mean, I don't know if you're salt sensitive, but at least even for me, you know, your rings get a little tighter, your socks get a little tighter, deeper rings, that kind of stuff. So do your best to limit it to the best of your ability. And it's very easy to exceed um, salt. You know, one of my, my major uh, pitfalls is if I ever am at a Mexican place and there are a lot of great plant-based Mexican places in our area, you know, when they make their own homemade, uh, you know, corn chips or tortilla chips, they're usually so heavily salted, like I eat a couple and I need to drink a whole bunch of water. So that when you have those signs come up, it means limit what you're eating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, restaurants use more sugar, fat and salt than any home cook ever would at home. That's a this fact. For sure. Yes. You know, that's where they get the sale. No salt, no sale. Okay. Um, TS would like to know where you practice and do people, are people allowed to see you virtually? So I practice in uh, Colorado. So I'm in a place called National Jewish in Denver. Um, if you live in Colorado, anywhere in the, within the borders of the state, I can see you virtually that way. If you want me to do a, a second opinion, a once over, whatever you want to call it in a non-traditional uh, medical setting, um, there is a, a website called Best in Class MD, um, where I sort of do a consultation without any medically binding. It's basically a, a legal way of not practicing medicine outside of state lines. So uh, a fancy way of saying, check it out if you're interested. And I think Chef AJ has the links. Uh, in, yeah, uh, I, I put it in the chat and I put it in the show notes. Great. Nice. Here's a question that came in from Marilyn. My mother-in-law had rheumatic fever when she was young. Five years ago, she got an infection that attached to her heart due to damage from the fever. She had to get a pacemaker and two artificial valves because they were damaged from the infection. She also went into kidney failure. She was able to avoid dialysis, but the doctor told her to avoid caramel color sodas like the plague. Currently, she is back in the hospital and needs two new heart valves, a new pacemaker, and she is in kidney failure again. The doctor says it has nothing to do with her lifestyle. It's all due to the heart issue from the rheumatic fever. I don't feel like this is the case. She's overweight, drinks diet soda instead of water and has a terrible diet. I don't agree, but I don't want to seem insensitive. What do you think? Could her lifestyle have prevented this condition from reoccurring? Uh, that's a loaded one. So again, you know, not knowing the details and just commenting, generally speaking, you know, people who've had rheumatic fever or mitral valve or aortic valve disease or both, and I'm going to guess those are the valves involved, typically there's actually valve destruction that goes on. Um, and so those valves typically are replaced. And if the person is young enough, they typically will get metal or, uh, you know, metallic valves. Um, and those typically last for 20, 25 years these days. Um, sometimes if they get a tissue valve from a pig or a cow or some other animal um, preparation, uh, you know, those will last a little less longer, but in general, they should last a lot longer. So if something else happens, something else may be going on. 
As for the sodas and other things like that, I mean, typically those are higher in phosphorus, which many times when you're in kidney failure, you should be avoiding because it's hard to get rid of um, when your kidneys are not normal. So I wonder if that's what's playing a role. Um, I guess what I would say is I'm not sure that this could have been avoided. Maybe it could have been avoided, but poor lifestyle makes every disease worse and it makes durability of things we do medically speaking, surgically speaking worse. Um, and it predisposes to more problems down the road. So if you said to me, if I took a perfectly, you know, healthy person that needed a valve and they were eating well and exercising and doing all these things, would that valve last longer, function better, et cetera? Probably so. But is there evidence that I could say that it's this amount or this percentage? No. So I guess what I would say is it sounds like there's some unfortunate situations uh, with infections and whatnot. There may be also some genetic predisposition, but also if there's infection involved or if that's what happened the second time, we fight infection better when we live and eat better. And this has been shown particularly in the COVID era. Um, you know, there's been a number of publications showing that uh, the people who are plant-based recover quicker, they're less likely to get very sick, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a long-winded answer to say, I'm not really sure in your particular case, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me that if living better would prolong life and quality of life, that's really what I would be after, so. Thank you. But that's true. Like you say, you know, like people say, well, I have this disease, this disease, will a vegan diet cure it? And the fact is it doesn't cure everything, but I think eating the standard American diet makes everything worse. So what do you got to lose, right? Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that saying by Dr. Kim Williams. Uh, there are only two kinds of cardiologists, vegan and those who haven't read the data, something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a controversial way of saying to people that they better get knowledgeable. The problem is, is that many people are just not willing and they will write off lifestyle uh, because it's quote harder to do. But I would say that we have a, a in my opinion, and there's even been a, a study by my colleague, Dr. Hull published about this saying that there's a moral imperative for us to discuss these things with our patients. And of course the future of our world and our environment that we live in depends on how we eat every day, believe it or not. And most people don't even realize the link between planetary health and climate and human health, they're all connected. So I always tell people, if you don't wanna do this for your own personal health, do it for the health of others or your children or your grandchildren, but wouldn't it be nice for all of them to inherit blue skies and fish filled oceans and you know, uh, just important things. And I don't think people realize the magnitude effect we all have. And as our population grows, the magnitude effect of what we eat every day matters more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've heard about the, what are they, the Tarahumara Indians? They don't eat any salt. They have the mm -hmm. lowest blood pressure. They don't pass out. They run miles and miles right. and miles, yeah. primarily plant-based. Amazing. Uh, Florence would like to know what percentage of folks over 70 need a low dose of blood pressure medication even though they eat whole food plant-based without SOS? You may not know the answer, but. Yeah, I'm. I, so if you said to me, was there ever a study published of people over 70 who are low-fat whole food plant-based, uh, Who? how many of them still have high blood pressure? I actually have no idea. It'd be a great study. I mean, I think, you know, if we could ever find enough sponsors to, you know, if we could get the spinach company and the banana companies and the citrus companies to underwrite a study, wouldn't it be amazing to actually figure some of these data out? That said, you should not feel bad if you are 70 years old and you've made some changes in the last few years and your blood pressure isn't perfect, right? Remember that it may have taken you 70 years to get to this point and it may take some time to undo the damage. And sometimes the damage is done. 
right? Like a lot of people come to me when they've been told they need bypass surgery and they think that I can give them an apple and it's just going to undo all the damage. I, I wish that was the case. If that was the case, I would, I would be celebrating from today to tomorrow. Here's your apple. I'd be giving them out for free. Um, but there is sometimes when the damage is done, it's hard to fully recover. But that said, the next part of this is preventing further damage. So the analogy I typically give many of my patients who come to me later in life is, you know, how many things do you own that are 70 years old or 80 years old? I mean, most of us, maybe if you live in a, a home that's 70 or 80 years old, but that's probably about it, where your birth certificate might be the oldest thing you own and that's it. Things don't last that long typically and humans do. And so the analogy I typically give is if I were to go in and send a home inspector to all your homes, there'd be sludge in all of the pipes, no matter how new your house is but you're not calling the plumber because everything's flowing. And that's sort of how coronary disease is. Most people die with coronary disease, but they don't necessarily have to die from it if we can slow down the progression of the disease. So in a lot of ways, you could argue that as we get older, we're all getting sicker and we're all approaching death uh, as morbid as that sounds, but can we make it so that we make it to the end feeling great? And for me, I'd much rather be grandpa or great grandpa, you know, dancing at my great grandkids wedding rather than sitting in the corner drooling to myself and miserable. Um, and so that's what I'm after. And so if you take a little blood pressure pill and it keeps you going for another 20 or 30 years and you can do just what I described, don't feel bad about that. Okay. And um, Krista says, what do you think of cardio scans? I'm not exactly sure what they're referring to by cardio scans. So there's a number of different companies out there doing scans and sweeps and all sorts of things. So what I would say is first, they're probably referring to a calcium score. So a calcium score is a quick snapshot to see if you have coronary disease. So let me explain. Atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries that many of you may know the more common term is common. Um, and we often will use a calcium score to decide if somebody has atherosclerosis that's visible. So calcium is a metal that shows up on CAT scans and x-rays. And so when you have had uh, coronary disease for a while, it tends to calcify. So the body calcifies things that are chronic and have been there for a while. Um, and so um, when we throw someone through a, a CAT scanner and we take a quick snapshot, we do a calcium score. If your calcium score is greater than zero, by definition, you have coronary disease. And then depending on what score you are, they'll do an age comparison. So if you're say a young person and you have a calcium score that's even one or two or three, your score could be quite high because it's unusual to have calcium uh, build up that young. Whereas if you are you know, over 70, a calcium score of several hundred could still put you in a relatively low percentile. But that said, the way I typically use it is as a risk enhancer to our discussion. If someone has you know, borderline criteria to be on a cholesterol pill or some other intervention, a calcium score can often push us to say, yep, you've got coronary disease, we gotta act now. Now there are some more, and I would argue disease shifting things coming down the pike that are really, really exciting. Um, one of them that I'm most excited about is from a company called Clearly, which is actually now headquartered here in Denver and it's C-L-E-E-R-L-Y. And many of you who either go to concierge docs or go to a savvy prevention person may have access to these scans. What those are are cardiac CT angiograms like we can do almost anywhere in the country now. And then they go through a plaque analysis and a coronary disease staging, which is really exciting work. So believe it or not, coronary disease is one of the only diseases in all of medicine that is not staged. I know that's hard to believe. It's mind blowing. And so clearly, and, and a couple of other organizations are working to stage it 
So you can imagine that you could get a, a, a CTA, a CT angiogram, a cardiac CT scan that has a clearly analysis. And then that would give you the stage of disease you might have. And then from there, your cardiologist can either work with you on prevention or acceleration of therapies, better lifestyle, and even medications to halt disease progression. And then you can even follow up those CT uh, clearly analyses um, and figure out if you've if you're winning or not, right? Are you halting the disease or is it getting worse? And if it's getting worse, we're in an era right now where we have a whole host of anti-inflammatory and coronary disease preventives that have never existed before. So we're getting closer and closer, I think, to one day, you know, maybe getting these types of CAT scans on everybody um, and then using the data we develop to intensify lifestyle first and then add medications rapidly to prevent coronary disease. So really exciting time, I think, in prevention. Nice. Thank you. This is a question from Keisha. And she said, what should a person cut out to lower their blood pressure if it's over 270 and their triglycerides are over 300? The person doesn't eat meat or dairy, but eats white bread, nuts, avocado, white sugar, and vegan food and condiments. And their blood pressure is 270? That's what it sounds like in triglycerides 300. That's high, isn't it? That's super. Well, so uh, if someone's blood pressure is 270, you got to get off of this call right now and take them to the hospital. So <laughs> um, so uh, that's dangerous. That would be a hypertensive emergency and that can be deadly. So if that's what they really are, that's a problem. Um, I- I'm going to guess maybe their cholesterol is that high or their triglycerides are that high. I guess what I would say is when your triglycerides are high and your body makes triglycerides from white carbs, sweets, sugars, alcohols, and fatty foods, which can be a vegan diet, believe it or not, as crappy as that sounds, it absolutely can't. And what does that mean? It means if I were to draw your blood and spin it down, there'd be a layer of cream at the top, which you can imagine is not healthy. And the data would suggest that it's harmful. So my suggestion would be um, that changing the diet is critical. So there, it's one thing to be vegan, And it's the other to be a healthy vegan. And there was actually a study published where they took omnivores and compared them to non-healthy vegan eaters and the omnivores did better. So you really have to be a whole food, low-fat plant-based eater to do well. The other way I often put it to my patients is right now you're eating like a king or a queen and I want you to eat like a peasant so you can live like a king or a queen. And as you may know, Peasant's bread, you may have heard of as the dark brown stuff that nobody wants. It's the brown rice that nobody wants. It's the unprocessed stuff that looks like it came out of the earth that nobody wants. That's the stuff you want. So, Right. You mentioned low fat. Let's talk about that because there, there's always, there's so many, the vegan wars, you know, there's, you know, nut seeds, avocado, even olive oil. There are cardiologists that recommend olive oil. And what I don't understand is if there is something in olive oil that has been proven beneficial in a study, wouldn't it have been in the olive? Like does something magical happen in the processing of a plant? Because I don't understand why somebody would wreck. I mean, look, whether somebody has high blood pressure or heart disease or not, let's face it, three fourths of the Americans are overweight or obese. How does giving them a non-food like substance that's 4,000 calories a pound help with that? Yeah, it's a very controversial topic. So let me explain a few things. So oils are, are a weird thing. With the exception of olive oil, which you can squeeze out of an olive with your fingers, everything requires very high heat and pressure to get oil out of these teeny tiny seeds. And so when your body gets exposed to them, it can immediately make triglycerides and even create some degree of inflammation. Um, The question becomes, has there been evidence to show that some oils may have cardiovascular benefits? 
And the answer is yes, actually, um, olive, canola, sunflower, and safflower have some proven benefit. Now that doesn't mean that you recommend that you drink the stuff. So if you look at like, for instance, the Mediterranean diet study, the Predimed study, those people had a large quantity of olive oil every day and they had less stroke, but not necessarily less heart attack. And if you look carefully at the data, uh, even though it says heart attack and stroke, it was combined together, not separate. So there may be a brain benefit perhaps from some degree, but it is highly caloric, as you said, um, and it's easy to overdo it, right? I mean, you know, I could take a napkin and soak it in oil and you think it's delicious. That doesn't mean it's good for you. So what I always tell people is um, do your best to limit oils and ideally get as low as you can. And then if you have to use an oil, use one of the ones that has some evidence base behind it. But the goal is to go as low as you possibly can. And then for my highest risk patients, I usually tell them there is some data suggesting that higher levels of oil and fats have endothelial cell damage or dysfunction that can occur. These are the cells that line blood vessels. This is the work that Esselstyn has shown over time. And actually a guy before him, Rob Vogel, uh, who was here in Colorado for a while practicing, you know, that was the guy who did the study where you eat a cheeseburger and your blood vessels sort of shut down for a while after. Um, and so in general, if you're of high risk, meaning you've had events, cardiovascular events, stents, bypass, et cetera, cutting down the oil to, to zero, if you can, is really ideal. Um, is it possible to live in a perfectly zero oil world? Yes, yes, but you'd have to eat at home and really never go out and eat packaged foods and whatnot. Remember that if you look carefully at all of the professional society guidelines, they all recommend non-tropical oils. And of course, what does every food now contain, even the vegan ones? Palm oil and coconut oil and all these other ones. And those are not evidence-based oils. In fact, those are actually harmful oils. Um, so what I would recommend is, again, doing your best to cut fat wherever you can. And if you must use an oil, use it in very small quantities and the ones that I mentioned. But again, it is controversial, especially if you're sick. And so do you need oil to live? Absolutely not. Um, and then the next question is, can you eat some olives? I'm, I have no problem with that. I would say that when you eat things in the matrix that they come in, they're less, much less likely to be harmful. And so when you eat with the fiber and the starches and whatever else that's in all the different foods that you eat, the absorption is different. Your body reacts differently to it. Um, and the same thing with avocados. Avocados are amazingly delicious. Um, getting oil out of them is certainly a, a process in itself. Um, but I would say that if you're eating 10 avocados a day, there's a lot of calories there. So do your best to have a thin little slice here and there if you really need it. So. Yeah, but who can do that? Come on. I don't know. <laughs> I, I love to know these people that can do that, but that is, that's, uh, thank you for that. Uh, let's see, I, I know you, you are a real working doctor and you have to get back to work. So I'll see if I can find one more question in yeah, you're the asking all the good ones today these are these are controversial oh, well, and we can ones. save them and if we don't get to your questions you know guys in the chat we always do the submitted ones first so please chefaj.com we send you a thing once a week and uh, tell you who's on the show you can ask that um here's one from sharon i'm 61 i recently had a carotid intimate media thickness test it gave me a vascular age of 68 due to vascular inflammation what do you recommend to improve this well, unfortunately, CIMT is an incredibly controversial thing. And it turns out that it's not recommended by any of the professional societies because they're very variable, even between different machines that measure it. So instead, I would tell you first, you should live well regardless of what your quote vascular age is, right? So that means eating low fat, whole food, plant-based and exercising and stressing less and sleeping enough and connecting with others, et cetera. And if you want a more... Um, 
vetted tool, I probably recommend a coronary artery calcium score. Um, but I, I don't put a lot of faith in CIMT. It used to be something that we would think of as helpful, but it's so very variable and it's not really recommended anymore. It's a bit of a surrogate for something that we can do better. Great. Thank you. Let's see if you try to do one more. I saw in the chat, where is it? Uh, Vi, I have high LP, little a, a history of hypertension, high cholesterol and AFib. I'm on a statin, Eliquist, metop metoprotol, sorry, and Multac. Does the Eliquist replace the aspirin you recommend? I'm whole food, plant-based, low salt. Yeah. So um, a little bit of a genetic storm there and some other uh, personal history. There's not a clear answer on this. So Eliquist does lower some degree of cardiovascular risk. Uh, the question is, do we know if it has an effect on lipoprotein A? I'm not sure we do. So if you're not a particularly high risk individual, meaning you're not jumping out of helicopters to ski and you don't fall every day and you don't live in an icy area where you fall and smack your head a lot, um, you could probably get away with being on Eliquis and aspirin, but I would talk with your cardiologist and see what they think. But you also want to make sure you talk to somebody who knows lipoprotein A. Uh, it's a little um, unclear what to do in that situation. And there's a lot of discussion that should go into that. Great. Well, thank you. You know, I've never been able to squeeze an olive and get oil out of it. What olives do you get that can do that? Well, some people would tell you that the juice that comes out of an olive is, is oil containing. Okay. That's funny. I don't eat olives, but they, uh, my husband does when we have Tostada Tuesday and I, I tried squeezing it. Nothing came out. So anyway, yeah. you, you they're, they're kind of oily. If you, if you press on them and roll them around, you, you should get some oil out. So. Yep. Absolutely. Well, isn't, isn't it true? I mean, that, that nuts and seeds are 90% oil. They're, they're fat. They are. They're very caloric. I always tell people the worst thing that ever got invented was shelled pistachio nuts because the shells oh are designed to slow you down. Oh, oh my God. That would be my, that is the one nut. Like I can resist, I can resist all the brown nuts, walnuts, almonds, pecans, Brazil nuts. Ugh. Even I can resist cashews and macadamia, but do not put shelled pistachios in front of <laughs> especially if they're unsalted and roasted. Those things are their kryptonite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope I get to spend more time with you either at a conference or on my show. I know you're very busy, but you know, please, whenever you have a chance, I know you're doing this between patients. We do appreciate you. And uh, thank you for being on the show, Dr. Freeman. Always a pleasure. And uh, thanks again uh, for having me. I look forward to being on again. Absolutely. And there's a link if you want to consult with Dr. Freeman virtually, but you can also see him in person if you're in the state of Colorado. Thanks so much for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Back by popular demand is Javant from the sensational YouTube and Instagram channel, Healthy Vegan Eating. He's going to be making a Jamaican curry and oatmeal cookies. I forgot to ask you, how was your Thanksgiving? Who cooked and what did you have? We actually, so we were actually up in the mountains with family uh, so we ended up getting uh, uh, a little slice of the Whole Foods mushroom loaf that they made that was surprisingly tasty. It was like lentils, mushrooms, and some other vegetables. I don't know what was on it. And a mushroom gravy. And we had some baked potatoes and green beans with almonds. And they were delicious. Yeah, I, I, I had the best Thanksgiving. I wish you lived close. I, you know, do you know Kelly Williamson? She's like one of my best friends. If you came over, we would make you the meal to <laughs> I'll have to pick you up on that next time no seriously either she'll come to me or I'll come to you because she helps me out at Rancho La Puerta as my sous chef and she could be the the star presenter boy I, we would love to cook for you <laughs> I'd love it all right well stay well and take care thanks so much you you just look younger every time I see you take care everyone thanks it's for the plants watching. it is the plants bye everybody bye-bye